pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you tonight and we sometimes just get beyond words. We don't even know what to say after a song like that. Father, we know that it is just truly awing when we consider the four verses of that song that just stops us in our tracks to know that we have a Savior that was willing to do that from when I survey, when I look, when I keep looking, when I don't just glance, but I mean I keep looking, when I keep surveying that cross. Father, and then to get to the point where if we were given the whole world to be able to give to you as a present, even that would be far too small compared to what you've given us. It's just such a reminder. It brings us back to the reality of what this week really stands for and what it represents. And then to those last two lines, if that isn't love, I don't know what is. It is truly amazing. And it's so divine because there's no way that kind of love works on this sinful earth. Love's so amazing, so divine, but what it does, it, it demands from us. It comes with a price. It demands for us to give our all, to give every part of us. That's what you want. That's the greatest thank you we could possibly give to you is when we dare surrender it all. And Lord, as we go into the, these letters tonight, Father, help us to really concentrate and help us to see that these letters were written to, yes, specific churches at the time. Seven churches that were real churches in real cities in Asia Minor. But yet it goes so far. It goes so much farther farther and when we hear after every letter if you anyone who has an ear to hear whether we are hearing tonight we have spiritual ears tonight and I would dare say that there isn't one of us that's going to leave without being convicted without being well feeling exposed father and it's important that you see that we are willing to see what we need to change, what we need that, that needs to be worked on. Father, tonight I know there's many needs. I know Carol's daughter, Cheryl, who is now seen to have to face more cancer in her life, but yet, Father, we know that she is well aware of your will because she has a mama that trained her well. Father, may we all, when we go through the sufferings and the trials of our lives, Father, may we be willing to look and see that you're always up to something. For many unspoken requests tonight, for many who, of course, didn't voice an actual request, but you know. And those words we're going to hear over and over tonight, a reminder that you know. And you do walk among the golden lampstands. You do walk among your church. You do walk with us every step of the way. And so, Lord, we just give you this time. And, Lord, I just pray that every one of us who is here with our Bibles open, going through seven letters, 
that I chose to go through every one and not divide it up. Lord, I pray that we don't look at our watches and if we go five minutes over, that that's just not a big deal. What is a big deal is that we know that we know that one of those churches could be us, that you were speaking too loudly. And so, Lord, we give you this night and we pray it all in our Savior's name who we humbly come before. And like John, we fall as though we are dead because we are so taken by who he really is. So, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, equal Godhead, we just pray that you anoint this place and that our ears are open to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So open our, well, first, before we open our Bibles, let's just hold them tight. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it is all that I need. To all of you who are listening and, and whether you're actually here tonight or whether you're doing the lesson on podcast, and I know there's so many who do, and I'm truly grateful for that. You're, you're probably hearing this voice again, and you're saying, yep, we never know what's going to come out of her, ne her next. But last week, you know, I told you I got the treatment, and I wasn't sure in the last few months it hasn't been taken real good. And, well, apparently today, I think it took. So tonight, even though I might sound a bit raspy, and so for some of you who are listening, you just got to listen closer. But this is such a good sign and so maybe you can, you know, rejoice with me, even though it might sound really unusual. But isn't it true that once we get into God's word and we get into the truth of it all, it really doesn't even matter what the voice is like or what the vocal cords are doing. Because the Holy Spirit is making the truth come known. So with that, let's open our Bibles. And, and I, don't, I don't need to review much, of course, but I want to make sure we know that chapters 1, 2, and 3 are so, so important. Because it's what Jesus is saying to John. He's saying, write this down because I want to make sure that, that everyone is looking at themselves, they're looking at their hearts, that they realize that this is authentic that Jesus told John, he handpicked John. John was willing to be the recipient. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he was, he was ready to receive this. And even John says that, I mean, I knew him well. I walked with him every day for over three years. I stood at the cross. I watched. I, I saw him in his glorified body after the resurrection. However, it still does not hold a candle to what I saw. I mean, if, if it was like we mentioned last week, if, if Jesus was just like he was, John would have looked like, you know, like we would look at some of someone we haven't seen, maybe an old friend that we haven't seen in a while. And, you know, it's great to see him, but it, we don't drop at their feet like, they're, like we're dead. I think it's so important that we see, and, and I believe that as he described Jesus from the robe to the hair to the blazing eyes to the refining, to the rushing water voice, 
to the sword, the double-edged sword. I think what John, what was happening to John was everything that he had learned about Jesus was just coming in one look. Oh, yes, that's who he is. And it just overpowered him. And so when Jesus said, John, I want you to write this down. I'm, I dare say that he couldn't wait. And we know that it's true because John got it. He understood Jesus' love. He experienced it. He identified himself as one that Jesus loved. I hope you could say that tonight. So as we move now into the letters, I think he's got our attention. We know it's authentic. We know John is definitely on the up and up. I think we have it all in place where our ears are ready. And then he says to John, I want you to write to seven churches. And there's that number again, that seven number. I told you last week that during the course of this week and you do, that you did your lesson, that you read the passage, that you would go into these churches being willing to say, which one of those churches is me? Because we know as this revelation unfolds, we know that the church, the golden lamp stands, the light, that is the church. But who's the church? It's you, it's me. He makes sure that we know that he holds us, the angels, he said, leadership of the church, but more importantly, it's you and I. He holds us in his right hand. That means he's boss, we're not. And so what he's going to tell us tonight, we have to listen. And so the first church that we see, the first church that we see is the church of Ephesus. And we know that it is a, a very alive church. It's very famous, the very famous city. It's got the temple Diana in it. I mean, it's a booming city. And this church in Ephesus was a very important church. And it was doing a lot of things right. And so to the angel of the church of Ephesus, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It was this particular study that I realized that every description of Jesus that we read about in the first chapter and that every, that every description that precedes each church is very applicable for that church. And you see, being that Ephesus was a big church and it was a mighty church and it was doing a lot of good things. I think they had a tendency to think that they were doing just fine. And they didn't even realize that they had pushed away their first love. It got to be so, oh, things are going so good. And we've got schedules. We've got committees. We've got a lot of volunteers. Everybody's getting the job done. And so that's why Jesus' description is this. I want you to know I hold the seven stars 
in my hand. In other words, be reminded, I'm the boss. I am over you. I have authority over you. And I know that sometimes we can get spiritually cocky. And Jesus wants to bring us back and say, remember, I hold you in my hand. You don't hold me. I know your deeds. Did you notice when you read this, did you notice how many times you heard Jesus say, I know. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. I'm sure when they were listening to this letter being read, they felt very, whoa, we're doing good. We're doing great. We're doing everything. And he's pleased with us. So it was really probably a shock when the reader of this letter then said, yet, nevertheless, see, this is where the grabber comes. Jesus says, I know that you're doing a great job. The work is getting done, and I applaud you, and I thank you. The thing is, I know your heart. And you have, you've, have taken that first love, and you've You've forsaken it. You've walked, you've walked away from it because you are self-confident. And then he says this, this I, hold, I hold it against you. I've told you a lot of good things, which is true, but I want you to know that what I see here, all those good things do not cancel this out. This is very important. So he says, nevertheless, this is what I see. You have forsaken. They didn't lose it with, when it was out of their control. No, he says, I want you to hear that you, fors you forsook it. You have forsaken. You walked away. It's your choice. And maybe it was so subtle you didn't even realize it. But all of a sudden, that excitement, that, that sparkle. Think about, because he says, think about, remember how far, how far, how far you have fallen. In other words, go back to that day. Remember, we've talked about it many times. I always say the day of our salvation it starts to be the worst day of our life as we look at ourselves the way we really are. And yet it turns out, of course, to be the best day. But there's something that happens that once you see yourself the way you truly are and your need for a Savior, and you stand right there ready and waiting for you to invite him to come into your life. And you are so excited that all of a sudden you were once lost and now you're found. You were once heading to hell, and now you have the promise of eternal life. Think about what that did for you. Think about how, 
how much you loved me. Think about how much you were excited to talk about me. Think about how much you love to read the scriptures and hear my voice and hear my instruction. Think about how much time you spent in prayer. Think about how much time you were not a bit embarrassed or ashamed to talk about me. Somewhere along the line, it just got to be kind of routine. And that is so important, he says. In fact, he says, you need to repent. It's that bad when you lose your first love. So your first love is, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think? How, how much do you love him? How much do you love other people? How much do you love the gospel? And when you lose love, you lose it all. That it just is routine. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, you know, faith is good, hope is good, but the greatest is love. And so Jesus says, repent and do the things that you did at first. And if you do not repent, in other words, don't think it, being that you're doing a lot of good things, no, you must repent. And if you don't repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. I would say that's serious. Because this church, whether this particular church is you, he's saying it's very serious if you have just become more routine than odd. And you better repent of that because you have lost major if you've lost the first love. Because really, when you've lost that, there's no point. You're not, you're not a light. Your lampstand is not shining forth that light in a dark world. You are quite ineffective, even though you're doing all a lot of great things. I see behind it. I see what you've lost, and you repent where I'm taking the lampstand away. He comes back with another compliment, basically, to another encouragement. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the Nicolaitans, just like I do. I mean, that's a strong word. And the Nicolaitans, I think it's very important that we see who, what group of people the Nicolaitans are. I know for a long time, I think I thought that they were just some pagan cult that tried to infiltrate the church. But the Nicolaitans were within the church body. And you, you can't help but see how relevant this is today. Because the Nicolaitans were a group of people within the church that started that started a lot of rumblings like, you know, we can't stay old-fashioned. We've got to modernize. We've got to get with the times. We've got to we've got to let the culture of 2022. We've got to we've got to help it along. 
We have got to bring 2022 into the church. We've got to, we've got to modernize. There's just no better word that I can say. It's a group within the church that thinks that Jesus, the gospel, is not enough. It's, it's kind of like, you know, and I've, I've told this story before, but I, when, I, when I was in this one church and the pastor came up to me and he says, you know, for ministry, you've got an easy job. And I said, I've got an easy, well, you can sing the same songs, tell the same stories every place you go. I, I didn't argue. I just thought it doesn't even warrant an answer. He went on to say to me, he said, you know, you can, you know, we have a tough, we can't preach Jesus every week. That's what he said. We can't preach Jesus every week. Now, this is in a denomination I was raised in. And I'm looking at this doofus. And I'm thinking, what have you been taught? What in the world, what in the world are you preaching every Sunday to these people if you can't preach Jesus every week? See, that came to my mind when I thought of the Nicolaitans. We're saying, come on, we've got to get with the program. We've got to, we've got to use the things in this world to draw people in. Because that message isn't quite cutting it. I think that's why Jesus came on so strong in these letters. To really make us look. But he did say to the people of this church, you hate this as much as I do. They're believing a lie that the church needs to modernize from the message of the gospel. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, don't just let this go. Don't just read it quickly. You take a look. Does this, is this you at all? That's what Jesus is pretty much saying. Is this you at all? Are you more routine now instead of in love with your Savior? That he's top priority. That he is the reason why you get up in the morning. That's what a first love does. You want to talk about them all the time. If you got an ear to hear, you better hear. This could be you. And before, before the judgment, before the scroll, before the scroll is opened, in the next lessons, he's saying, chapters 1, 2, and 3, take a look at yourself. Because someday you are going to stand in front of that Savior. And you've got time now to get your heart ready because once it starts, it's not going to turn off. It's not, there's no turning back. So this is like prepare now. I'm warning you now, take a look. It might have been subtle. You didn't even realize it. Well, now's the time you realize it. 
And then to the angel of the church of Smyrna. See, there's only two out of the seven churches that do not have to hear the word repent. So then why would they need a letter? Because this is so true to form in people's lives. This church of Sardis. Sardis, listen, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So why the description of Jesus for this particular church? Why this particular description? This was a suffering church, a persecuted church. This this is somebody who has one obstacle after another. One, one hurt after another. One suffering after another. It seems like life just plain stinks. It does not get better. It's just, it's, it's hard to deal with every morning. Every morning you got to get up and you have to deal with the same thing. So as we talk about this particular church, it was a persecuted church. It was a suffering church. But whether you take a person and you say, that's me. I don't think I can count on one hand how many good days I've had. It's just been one trial after another. Now, why would someone like that need a letter of encouragement? Because it's so easy to throw in the towel. It's so easy to give in. It's so easy to just give up. What's the point? And so Jesus knew, and he said, write this letter to Smyrna. And use the description of me. Remind them that they are not serving and worshiping a Savior who does not understand. Make sure they're reminded, I died. I lived, I lived on this earth for 33 years. I experienced rejection. You make sure they remember that verse in Isaiah where I got beat so bad I was unrecognizable. I know suffering. So remind them that they can come to me and I get it. I understand. I've been there. That's why he says, I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. Yet you are rich. He said, please remember, I know that you're in tough times. And I know that you just seem to think that it's just doom, and it's, it's just not worth it. And it's, it's just every day is a struggle to get up in the morning and face a new day. I know that. But he says, you are rich. You are a church that knows me, that, that has my word. And sometimes I think when we get caught in our sufferings, we forget that, well, we say it every week, and it's all we need. We sing it, he is all I need. But somehow, we just don't put that into practice. 
Oh, yeah, but you're supposed to make me happy and comfortable. I'm sure that when they were hearing this letter, I'm sure they were waiting for the part that would say, and I'm going to make it all better. Because that's what human nature wants. We want to hear Jesus say, I'm going to make it all better. And he doesn't always say that. He did not say this to the church of Smyrna. He says, I know, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but they're not. But they're really just a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. That is not the line they wanted to hear. Do not be afraid of what the enemy is going to keep doing to you. I want to make sure that you know that it is going to continue. And it's not the words you wanted to hear. In fact, I'm going to have to tell you that you're going to be tested and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. We don't know if that's literally 10 days or whether it's just a period of time. But he says these words. And again, I think when you hear that a period of time, well, I guess I can hang on for 10 days. If I just know that the suffering is going to be over, then I'll be fine. And you know what? He doesn't say that to them. He doesn't say that in 10 days it'll be over. In fact, he even says, I need you to be faithful. I need you to be faithful to what you have. And that's me. And there isn't a circumstance or person that can take me away from you. You are rich in me. You've got my word that will give you the encouragement and the stamina to get up every morning. Be faithful with those two things. Because you might continue this until death. Oh. But then he goes on. He goes on to say, I will give you, I will give you. If, if that's all you know in your life is suffering and you have had a tough life and you go to your grave with things not getting any better, but instead of saying, why me? Instead of, of allowing it to take over you, and as Satan would want it, make you ineffective. You have allowed the Lord to use this suffering because people are always watching. And they've watched you be faithful and they've watched you remain in his love and you've experienced joy and peace. That speaks volumes. That shows Christ's character through it all. He says, I will give you the crown of life. I want you to remember that it is not all about here. 
He's trying to move their sights because everything about this life is just taking him down. And he's saying, no, I want you to get your sights. I want you to turn your eyes upon me. Look full in my face. And then the things that you're experiencing will grow strangely dim when you compare it to the light of his, my glory and grace, he says. I'll give you that crown of life. The life that will last forever. That you will, you won't even, in fact, you will say like Paul, you mean that's all I had to go through to get all this? Someday in perspective, you're going to see that all of your suffering here really wasn't that bad to be able to gain the crown of life. With every church, did you notice did you notice that if you have ears to hear and you hear and you overcome, he then rewards you. Like with Ephesus, he rewards you with what? Paradise. The ability to eat from that tree of life. To Smyrna, if you're willing to follow my instructions and to hang on to what you have. To realize that, yes, you are rich. And you go to your grave suffering, but you remain faithful. You will then have the crown of life. I'll tell you, that is making it worth our while. So, is the church of Smyrna, is that you? Have you had just plain had a tough life? And there just doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And every morning, every morning, you've got to get up and deal with the truth of it all, the reality of it all. But along with that reality is what he promised. I walk among the lampstands. I'm there walking with you. Yes, my spirit lives within you, but I want you to have the visual that I'm walking with you. And then to the church of Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So why this identification of Jesus for this particular church because it's perfect for this church this is a church that well they just they just want it both ways they they want to play both sides oh they love coming to church on sunday they love to lift their hands and praise they love the feeling that it gives them they feel so spiritual. And they walk out of church and they love it. But then they go back to their lives. They go back to what they always do. They give the Lord certain amounts of their time. They, they still want a tradition. They still, they still will... Pray at mealtime. They still hold tight to some of their traditions, but they're, 
in such denial thinking that that's enough. That I can go to church and feel all of this for an hour and then don't go over for five minutes because I have got beach plans. This, this church reminded me of our study of Esther. How the people that did not return when God said return. When they got comfortable. When they got so comfortable and they, they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem, broken down Jerusalem. No, they're, they're a part of this Babylon community and they're thriving and they made a life there. Well, it reminds me of, of Esther and Mordecai. They followed traditions. I mean, obviously, the Jews, the people of Babylon, they could see that they were a peculiar people. They had some quirky ways of worship, but not enough to challenge them. In other words, there wasn't a great witness to the Babylonians these Jews weren't saying, oh, do we want to tell you about our God? No, God isn't even mentioned in the book. Instead of knowing, like Daniel, that God would be their source of strength and courage. They said, what can we do to fix this problem? The church in Pergamum, I think there's so many people that can say if they were truly honest and were willing to let the Lord expose them, this is me. I mean, there's some real good traits here. I mean, he says that to them. He says, I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. I mean, that wasn't a good trade. I mean, that was a low blow. I know that Satan is on the throne of your life. It's still really all about you. You'll give me an hour or two here and there. But it really boils down. And when Satan is on the throne of your life, you know, it sounds horrible, but yet our human nature loves it. Because he appeals to our human nature. He keeps telling us, that's okay, that's okay. You at least give him an hour. You at least hold to, true to some of your traditions. Good enough. He says, yet you remain true to my name. Even though I know Satan is on the throne of your life, I know you still hold true to my name. See, you're still holding on to those traditions. And as far as Jesus is concerned right now, he's saying, I'll give you that. I'm glad that you haven't totally abandoned me and walked away. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You didn't renounce your faith when Antipas was killed for his. So I'll give you that. Nevertheless, nevertheless, yet as much as I gave you a little of those, nevertheless, what I do see, 
Those two little things does not cut what I do see. I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. He says, what I do see is that in your free time, in in all the hours that you feel are yours, this is what I see you doing. You're taking all your advice from bad teaching. If you ever want interesting reading sometime, read the story of Balaam and Balak in the book of Numbers. And how deceitful Balaam was trying to turn Israel away from God. And the mechanics and the manipulation that he'd used. And the thing is, in our off time, when we are not connected to the Lord Jesus, when we're not experiencing the Holy Spirit power, you are seeking advice from Bad, corrupt teaching, television, news, internet, Facebook. You, maybe, maybe this isn't you, but there's so many church-going people that are taking all their truth, not from God's word, but from, from Facebook. When, when, and they call themselves patriots and all this kind of thing. But they're taking all their, their advice from corrupt teaching. Instead, of if you feel you need wisdom and you need advice and teaching, every week I, see, I hear you tell me, this is all you need. It's the only book that you can know is truthful. But when you are not connected to the Holy Spirit and you are not when he is not your top priority, when you're trying to play both sides of the fence, you will take advice from corrupt teaching. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In fact, he's saying that in this particular church, yeah, there's some people that are, are doing it right. There's some people that are, are corrupt in their teaching. There's some people that are buying that we need to modernize the church. We need to use worldly ways to draw people in. But when, he, when he's talking to an individual, and maybe, maybe you're from the church of Pergamum, maybe you're that church. Maybe you're trying to play both sides. And maybe you are taking teaching from other than this book. And you're holding it so tight as gospel truth. Or maybe you're one that says, yeah, we got to do something. People are leaving the church. We got to do something. It's just what Esther and Mordecai said. 
We got to do something. I still say, if preachers were taught how to preach Jesus every week, if they were taught to make their sermons all about Jesus, and believe me, that fits into every topic. But you never, I I saw a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, and it said to pastors, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. I'll tell you, then you have a church that you know if anybody walks in the door, they're going to hear the truth. And if they walk out, then it's because they don't want the truth. And that's not your problem. What we're responsible for is making sure that they hear the truth. Why aren't people coming back to church? I think a lot of it is they don't want to hear the truth. Because a lesson like tonight, it convicts, it challenges, it exposes. But they aren't willing to look beyond that and see the reward. If you're willing to overcome and repent and listen and be obedient to his instruction. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. What in the world is hidden manna? He's saying it's hidden. Well, what is manna? It was bread, right? What do we know about Jesus? He said, I am. I am the bread of life. But anybody who doesn't really know Jesus isn't going to know about the bread of life. That you can eat from him and be filled. That you can be satisfied. He says, if you overcome, if you are willing to listen and to obey, I will unhide. I don't even know if that's a word. But I will unhide that concept and introduce you to the bread of life. And you will be satisfied. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it. That white stone represented a blessing. He said, if you're willing to listen and overcome and repent, I will give you a blessing that this world can't possibly give you. I will give you a blessing and I will put a new name on it. There's a new name written down in glory. He will give us a new name. How about child of the most high? It's not a bad name. And then to the church of Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He uses two characteristics of chapter one. 
Jesus says, you tell this church, I have blazing eyes. Remember what we said last week? Blazing eyes are like those judgment eyes. He can see right through you. And then the refining. When he said, those whose feet are like burnished bronze. So he puts those together because this particular church is, is just so, oh my goodness, I don't know how to say it, but it's so identifiable in every age. In every age of scripture all the way. I mean, this is a, this is a church that has a problem with sex. I'm just going to say it. And if you think that isn't a problem today, it's in everything. And the temptation is so luring, it sucks people in. This is a church that, well, listen, listen to how he describes it. I know your deeds. I know you think you're hiding it from the world. But I know your deeds. And he's saying, I know all your deeds. I know your love and faith, your service and perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. That says, I even know that you're even growing a little bit spiritually. And so he starts by saying, I know your heart, and I know you mean well, and I know you love me. But you've got a problem. It's a problem that has just sucked you in. This is a problem that so many church people Behind closed doors. This, this church had hidden closet. This church had secrets. But they did have good hearts. They really did. They did love the Lord. But that's the point of this. He's saying, but there's a part of your heart. There's a part of your heart that I want cleaned up before you and I are face to face. If you got some secrets that you think that no one knows, and the sad thing about it, if it's not handled, if it's not addressed, it can get so bad that you think there is no way out. That's why this is such a serious letter to this church. I think of how many people are struggling with this addiction. And because they can hide it. And it's got to be addressed. Look what he says, nevertheless, I know you mean well. 
but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. See, that luring Jezebel is a temptation that is just so hard to say no to. You think about the affairs. You think about that pornography. You think about, I mean, it's a, it's a grabber. I mean, the way he termed it, it comes from Jezebel. What a way to say temptation. And it's a strong one because our natural human feelings and emotions just want to go there because it feels good. It makes me feel good for maybe a little bit of time. The lie that it tells you by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food, food sacrifice to idols. And he goes on to say, I know how hard this is because, look, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling when it has you around the neck. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. The consequences to this are, they're so severe. When he's willing to even go to the children, you think about the hurt and the pain and the broken homes and the kids. I will strike her children dead. And I think of some poor children who have blamed themselves, who it's affected them for all of their life. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts. He comes back, and this is powerful. He says, I want people to know I can see. I can see what's in hidden closets. I can see your secrets. And then people will know. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to Jezebel's teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. He's saying to those of you who are being tempted, who even maybe right now you're saying, this church is me, and I'm on the borderline, and I, I can feel the pull, He's saying, hold on. Hold on to what you have 
until I come. You think it's an impossible temptation to withstand. No, not if you hold on to me. You come to me. This is such an encouragement to those who are this church. There's hope. Jesus is saying, there's hope. Oh, there might be consequences. You might have to face the music. Maybe people will talk. That's their problem. But you know you can be forgiven. And you and I, we can still have plans together. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received from my father. I will also give him the morning star. I will give you the morning star. I will give you a bright new morning. You can start a new day. You can start over. He wasn't here. Let him hear. If Thyatira is you, listen, there's still to the angel of the church of Sardis. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I am holding you in my right hand. I am the boss. I have the authority. And my Holy Spirit, my Holy Spirit can be such an asset to you but so many of Christians today, they get their ticket, they get their salvation, but they grieve the Holy Spirit by putting their thumb on them because they don't want to be told what to do. They want to do it their way. Human nature says, I want to do what I want to do. And no one's going to tell me otherwise. That's the church of Sardis. They're not utilizing God's spirit to do the impossible. The Holy Spirit is bigger than human nature. And even though, even though you don't want to hear what he's got to say sometimes, because you know he's always going to lead you in the right direction. It's, it's why we sang, I surrender all tonight. The church of Sardis thinks that the song goes like this. I surrender part of it all. That's the church of Sardis. I surrender part of it all. And the Holy Spirit is trying to say, that's not how he works. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And then you know what? In his presence, I'll daily live. And I'll hear him talking to me. 
through his spirit. And I will surrender because he is always going to lead me in the right direction. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. And you have a reputation of being alive. Oh, do you know how to play, play the church game? Do you ever have everybody who can't see your insides and your true motive? Oh, they think you are the epitome of what a Christian looks like. And Jesus is saying, you know, I see, and you know, really, you're just, you're dead. You appear to be alive in me, but that's all self-orientated. It's because you know how to play the game. You know how to quote the right verses. You know how to say the right church words at the right time. But I see you're dead. You're about as phony as they come. You look at he says after that, wake up. What a great warning. What a love letter. He doesn't want people from this church. He doesn't want you if this is you. He doesn't want you to face them. Phony. So he's saying, well, you got time. Let's take a good look at this. Wake up. Maybe it's something you didn't even know was happening to you. Maybe you didn't even know you were happening. You didn't even know what was happening. Maybe you thought the fact that you fall into yourself and self-pity and, and weakness and sin. and It's just because maybe he wasn't there. Or he didn't want to help you. Or maybe he really doesn't do every promise, he says. See, that should prove it right there. You really don't know him. You just know about him. Strengthen, strengthen what remains and is about to die. He said, you better take this seriously. Because you got time now to become the real thing. To make sure that his commands and his instructions and his word is something you want. That he is your priority. That when you went to Calvary for your salvation, you gave him your life too. He says, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of God. He said, you know what? You might have come. You might have taken that walk. You might have gotten your ticket. But you're missing the second part. Because you're not willing to release the spirit. Because the spirit is going to tell you what I want for your life. 
And you don't want to hear that because you still want to call the shots. And so to Jesus, that means you're phony because you're not willing to give it all. Because that second part, to me, is just as important. Because the second part proves that the first part happened and worked. And it wasn't just emotion. Because if you really take that walk to the cross, see, that, that first love, that real walk to Calvary, that should automatically lead to deeper spiritual growth. It should automatically. If you look at that cross and you truly believe what it did for you and where you would be without it, we should be in our Bibles. We should be, we should be, well, it's just like Ephesus. You'd keep that first love alive. And then you know what happens? You stay real. Remember, therefore, what you have received, what you've heard. You know, it's kind of like going to church or to Bible study and you walk out of the doors and you say, that was good. And then you park it. And you don't let any of it take a hold of your heart so it makes no changes. It's the parable of the sower all over. Oh, that's good stuff. But if you don't let it take a hold of your heart, if you are willing to see that it's exposing you, if you are not willing to see that part of your heart that he's trying to get you to see, you're not willing to listen to the Spirit say, yeah, that was good stuff, and you have to let this get a part of you. If you're not willing to eat it, and let it be a part of you. That's how you turn phony. Or you learn the right words and the right phrases. And, but it doesn't change you. That's why he says next time when you're in church or when you're at Bible study, you really hear it. And you really obey it. And then watch what happens. But if you do not, if you, if, you don't, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. And I don't think he's talking about the end times. He's talking about, you don't listen? Well, let's see what I can do to get you to listen. That's how much he loves you. And maybe your next trial is not because he's mean, but because he said, you didn't listen. And you weren't expecting this, were you? You weren't expecting the suffering. Well, good. Maybe I got your attention. 
So you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Here's another chance for a comeback when you think, that's impossible. That's impossible to live by God's spirit and God's spirit alone. It's impossible to keep myself in check. And he says, no, it's not. People are doing it all the time. You just don't know me good enough. You don't trust me good enough. You aren't willing to surrender it all good enough. He says, he who overcomes, if you are willing, if you're willing to hear and obey and overcome, look what he says. You yourself, you can be dressed in white. You know what that means? Living right. Living right. With that white robe of righteousness. Because you're listening to his spirit instead of yourself. It's not impossible. And he said, and if you're willing to do it, I will never blot your name from the book of life. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think most of us were taught that on the day of our salvation, our name was put into the book of life. But here it says right there, Jesus said, if you are dressed in white, in other words, you let my blood cover you with that white robe of righteousness, then I will never blot your name from the book. So that means our name must be in it to start with. And you know, the more I thought about it, the more sense that made. That on the second of our conception, on the second that life begins, our name is in the book of life. Because he breathed in to that being the breath of life. So when he breathes into every new baby, the breath of life. That baby's name goes in the book of life. That's why I believe children, aborted babies, I believe they'll all be in glory. But it gets serious when you get to the age of accountability because it takes on a whole nother concept. And you read it in these verses. Because when you do get to the age of accountability, when you have heard the gospel, and you do have a choice to make, and you choose not to respond to the gospel, then he blots your name out. And I wonder... When we read about this book of life when it's opened in, in chapter 20, I think. And when the unbeliever looks in the book of life and he sees a space that's empty, but a 
according to alphabetical order, that's where my name should have been. But it's been blotted out. I think that's why he says, and he who wasn't here to hear, you better hear this. And then to the church of Philadelphia, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. This is an endearing description of Jesus because this was an endearing church. Jesus loved this church. This church did not need to repent. But why did it need a letter? Oh, because this is such a huge problem then, today. What Jesus opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He wants them to make sure that this church, I'm the boss, and I'm the one who opens doors of opportunity for you. And if I open a door of opportunity for you, no one can shut it. But the tendency is to want to shut it because, well, let me read on. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word, have not denied my name. What is he saying about this church? I know you're little. I know that the temptation of comparing yourself to other people is so prevalent. I understand I was from this church for so many years because it seemed like I had opportunity after opportunity that I thought doors just shut. Apparently, I wasn't good enough. And I sang that song and dance for years. Oh, but Lord, if you would just open that opportunity for me. You think of the throngs of people I could, oh. And the Lord says, you got it all wrong. You want that door of opportunity to open, but I'm keeping it shut because it would hurt you. Besides, I've got other plans. It has nothing to do whether you're good enough because you're going to be saying what I tell you anyway. And that's going to be good enough. But he had to switch my whole mentality. Because the temptation is there when you compare yourself to other people. Or when you look at bigger deeds. Look what they can do. You look at yourself in the mirror and you say, what's the point? What good is that going to do for the kingdom? You think they don't need a letter? It's way too easy to throw on the towel and give up and say, apparently when talent was given out, I didn't get any. 
so sorry, Lord. Or you're like the parable of the, the man who says, yeah, you gave me these talents. I just buried them. Boy, if you ever studied that parable, you talk about Jesus being hopping mad. What do you mean? You buried them. Because they weren't enough or they weren't big enough. They weren't good enough for your expectations. Oh, they need a letter. I know I needed this letter. God's got a plan for your life in my life. And did you ever think that he closes doors because he's sparing you instead of you missing it? I love that line. I'm the one that opens the doors. And if I open the door, no one can shut it. And then look at he says, I know you have little strength. I know in the world's eyes, I, I understand all that. Yet, you can tell he just loves them so much because despite that, you still keep going. You still love me. You have not denied my name. You have not thrown in the towel. But maybe this letter came just in the nick of time. Did you ever think about that? Because maybe somebody in that church, or maybe somebody today, last night, tonight, maybe this came at just because you were just about ready to throw in the towel. And it came in the nick of time. Look what he says. I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. If there is anybody who's making you feel belittled for any reason, all those people who are tooting their horns, who've let pride get the best of them, because they've watched the Lord bless them, and instead of humbling because of what the Lord has done through them. They take it to their head. And then those, those poor suckers down there, just look at it. Just do what I do. Look what he says. I'm going to make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And is there anything more precious than hearing the words, I love her, I love him. Do you hear Jesus say that? At first I read that and I thought, boy, that sounds like a little revenge. I thought we're not supposed to revenge. You're right, we aren't. But Jesus says, I can it is mine to avenge, says the Lord. Can you imagine having the Lord say, I love her, I love him, and you just drop down to your feet, you who thought you were so much. Let me show you what real love is and real commitment is and real humility is. He 
is that since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Boy, that sounds good to me. I don't exactly know what it means, but could it mean that we're out of here before the tribulation? Could that be? I don't know. All I know is that he says, I will spare you. I will keep you from the hour. I'll be walking with you side by side. Maybe that's what it means. That when it starts, it's not that we're out of here, but we acknowledge that his presence is right there. Maybe that's what it means. Either way, it's fine with me. That either I won't be here or he'll be there with me. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you have. Again, a reminder. What do we have? We have him. And no one can take him away. And we have his word. And his word will remain firm in the heavens. His word never changes. It does not need to be modernized. So that no one will be able to take your crown. Will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make. So instead of feeling worthless and weak and little strength, instead he makes us into a pillar. And what is the purpose of a pillar? To hold everything up. To stand on a foundation and hold it all up. It's quite a sharp contrast. But I, I don't have any talent. I have a little strength. What could I possibly do? Oh, just be a pillar. <laughs> Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Boy, that's, that's a good letter to this church. I hope that if this is you, that you have an ear to hear, to hear how worth it you are and what he really thinks of you. And then finally, the church of Laodicea. And that to me is the saddest of all the churches. Because in all of the other six, there was still some, it's like, you got to good heart. I know you mean well. I know that there's some good parts to you, but you've got to see what's not good so that before you stand in front of me, that we can get this all out of there. But with this church, look at the description. These are the words of the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. It's like John Pull out all the stops of my description. Because this church needs to hear everything. The amen, the faithful, the true, 
the truth. The ruler of God's creation. Maybe then they will listen to who's talking. They will, they will understand. This particular church wouldn't understand because they didn't have a water supply and they had to get it from two sources. One of the sources was from like the mountains and so it was cold water. And another source that they got was from hot springs. So they would understand this. He said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. You're good for nothing. Lukewarm is good for nothing. When a cold, when it's supposed to be cold and it's lukewarm, it doesn't do what the cold's supposed to do. If it's supposed to be hot and it's lukewarm, it doesn't do what the hot's supposed to do. It's good for nothing. And, I, and lukewarm is so yuck that I'm about to spit it out of my mouth. So in other words, you're running out of chances. You're running out of time. And when I spit you out of my mouth, did you ever think about where you're going to land? When I spit you out of my mouth, you're going to land smack dab in hell. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And you say, you have got yourself so fooled. You say, I'm rich. Because this church from the outside, I think everybody who rode by said, they, they were awed. They, they had everybody so fooled with, well, look at, you think that you're rich because you got plenty of money because it was a rich community. It was a medical city, so a lot of education, a lot of everything. So you've got yourself so full that, oh, man, our church is just full of money, and it's just full of educated people, and we have got it all. He says, you said I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, but, but you do not realize, you do not realize that you are wretched. You are pitiful. He doesn't spare any words. I can't even call them spiritually cocky because they're not even spiritual. They've got themselves set fools. He said, you're wretched. You're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. But he comes back with, it's not too late. Right now, it's not too late. I can't guarantee you what tomorrow's going to bring. But right now, I want to give you counsel. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become really rich rich in the right sense of the word. That you can wear the right clothes. Oh, I know you are dressed in the nine, but they're filthy rags compared to the white robe of righteousness. 
so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So all you doctors and all that medical facilities, and you think you're so smart, you think you got miracle drugs, well, guess what? They're not, they can't even give you what only I can. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He's saying, I love you. And there's still hope for you. I discipline those I love. But you've got to take it. So be earnest and repent. And this is the saddest verse, isn't it? Jesus is standing on the outside. It's like I said to that minister, what in the world are you teaching those people? Oh, you're teaching what their engineers want to hear. Oh, they're going to come back in droves. Because you're not going to talk about blood and conviction and expose and judgment. So be earnest and repent. Because I'm standing at the door and I am knocking. I want to come in and I will. And I circled the word if. If you hear those knocks and if you open it, I will come in and I will start a fellowship with you. I will start a new walk with you. And that walk can get closer and closer and closer. And we can put all this other behind. And I can remember it no more. To him who overcomes, I will give the right. And again, what an extreme. Instead of being spit out of his mouth into hell. He said, if you just see, if you just repent, I'm going to put you right next to me. I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I overcame and sat down with my father and his throne. Here's your opportunity. If you belong to this church, if God's spirit is sitting on your shoulder tonight because he's not living inside of you yet, and he's, he's just speaking into your ears saying, that's you, that's you. I pray you do not let one minute go by because I can't guarantee you what tomorrow will bring. I can guarantee you what he says he will do right now seven churches seven is the complete number because it better have hit you somewhere somehow some way that we are willing to get our lives cleaned up to become real because he says look behold I'm coming so shall it be You've got the chance now. Heavenly Father, thank you for this lesson is all I can say. I pray we all have years to hear what your spirit is trying to get us to hear so that we can know you and live with you to to know that your presence is always there.
that we can live in the hope of what our future is going to be. Even so, even so, Lord Jesus, come and may you find your church ready. In Jesus' name, amen.